As we come to God's word this morning, would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord, we believe that you deeply and intimately know every single person who's here this morning. You know, Lord, the week that they are coming out of. You know their emotional state, their spiritual state. You know what's happening in their relationships. You know what's happening in their physical bodies. Lord, you know every single one of us. And it's not by accident that we're here. And Lord, we entrust ourselves to you now. We ask that as we look at this passage from the Bible, that you would give us clarity and understanding, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd help us to understand rightly what this passage is saying, and that you would help us to leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. How many of you have ever seen the documentary film Supersize Me? Okay, a handful of you. For those of you who have not seen it, uh, the basic premise of this film is that this guy, his name is Morgan, he set out on a mission, he set out on a quest to eat only McDonald's for 30 days straight. So he had to eat McDonald's every single day for those 30 days. He had to eat three full meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all at McDonald's. During the course of that 30 days, he had to uh, at least one time consume everything that was on the menu. And if they asked him if he wanted to have his meal supersized, he had to say yes, and he had to finish it. So this is what he set out to do. And of course, as you can imagine, by the time the end of this comes, uh, some of the results are somewhat frightening. After five days, he gained 10 pounds. After the full 30 days, he'd gained a total of 25 pounds. Which when I was, you know, when I first heard that, I thought to myself, well, that's, you know, I guess I thought it'd be worse than that. Uh, I guess I was sort of unimpressed by it. But then I I sat there for a minute and I was like, wait a minute, that's like one pound per day almost that this guy gained by consuming, you know, bubbly corn syrup water and, you know, processed meat and starchy, you know, salty sticks of potato, quote unquote, whatever those things are. You know, uh, among other things, he had a 13% increase in his body mass. He had significantly increased cholesterol. He had uh, increase of fat in his liver, who could have guessed. He had uh, depression. He had mood swings. And there were other, you know, various physical ailments that came out of as well that I'm not going to take the time to describe to you here today. The film is obviously trying to be somewhat of an indictment on the fast food industry. It was actually created not long after there were a number of lawsuits that came out against places like McDonald's for selling unhealthy food that was, you know, uh, that was very unhealthy and that was, you know, intended to be sort of addictive and all this kind of stuff. Uh, My goal here today is not to make any sort of judgment on fast food. Uh, You can ask for my opinion later if you care to hear what it is. Um, But I guess bringing this up today, my goal is just to sort of um, affirm what this shows us. Okay, among other things, what this film shows is that we are what we eat. And of course, that doesn't mean, we all know this, it doesn't mean that, well, if you eat lots of carrots, you turn into a carrot. Okay, it's sort of a, um, a metaphor, it's sort of a uh, turn of phrase to mean what you put into your body deeply affects who you are, and it, it directly affects your health. So if you consume lots of really bad food, lots of processed food, lots of sugary food, if you consume all of this kind of stuff on a regular basis like this guy did, 
Even if your body isn't, you know, even if you're not physically overweight, you can still be a thin person and very unhealthy. And so uh, what we put into our bodies, actually, uh, that makes a difference. We are what we eat. And this film really helps to sort of just um, confirm what I think we all already knew to be true. Now, this is true of our physical bodies, that the food that we consume has a profound impact on the health of us. If we consume good food, we will become healthy people. But this is also true in a broader sense as well. It's broader than just physical. We are what we eat, and at the very same time, more broadly, we become what we consume. We become what we consume, meaning that the things that we let into our minds, the things that we think about, have a deep and profoundly shaping effect on not just what we think, but the kind of people that we are. Because the things that go on in between, you know, in between our ears, that stuff never just stays up there. It's always in some way worked out in the way that we live. And we are what we consume. We become what we consume. We are in the final stretch of a message series in the book of Philippians. And one of the things we've seen over these last number of months is uh, Paul is the name of the guy who wrote the letter to the church in Philippi, and he's addressed a number of very specific situations um, that were unique to their specific you know, cultural moment. But those things, even as we look at them, we see the same kinds of things are challenges for us as well, and so it's been really helpful um, for us to observe those and see how they apply to our situation as well. But as he sort of gives some final closing exhortations in this book, uh, what we see is that he speaks a little bit more broadly. And in these verses, uh, verses four through nine, we see him say, pray about everything, think about these things, and put it all into practice. A couple weeks ago, we looked at his instruction when he says, pray about everything. And here today, what we're gonna do is sort of focus our attention on his instruction to think about these things. Now, here's why I think it's important for us to think about this. What consumes our thinking will direct the course of our lives. It's true for every single one of us. What consumes our thinking, it will direct the course of our lives. In other words, we are deeply shaped, we are deeply formed by what we let into our minds. This is one of the things that this passage points out, and it's also uh, not something that's uh, localized just to this passage. There's other parts of the Bible that say uh, very similar things as well. So for example, in Psalm 1, Psalm 1 is a picture of, gives a picture of the flourishing person, gives a, a picture of the righteous person. And it says this in verse 1, it says, blessed is the one. When you hear the word bless, blessed, you can think uh, flourishing, you can think of abundance. So blessed is the one, flourishing is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Think about how counterintuitive that is for us to think about delighting in God's law, right? That's the part of the Bible that we tend to skip over. That's the part where people stall out in their yearly Bible reading plans because it's boring and it feels tedious and we don't understand why these instructions are given. Some of them don't feel very culturally relevant to us. It feels very black and white. It feels very sort of like, you know, suppressive or oppressive. And so we tend to not think of the law of God as something that is worth delighting in and yet what the psalmist tells us here is that flourishing is, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The word meditate's a word that literally means to mutter, sort of to mutter under your breath. And you get the picture here of someone who's, who the, the instruction of the Lord is always on their heart 
It's always on their mind, it's always on their lips, day and night. The instruction of God is not something that I grit my teeth and I bear. The instruction of the Lord is given to me for my good, I delight in it, and it's always on my mind. I'm always thinking about the instruction of the Lord. That person, we're told, is like a tree planted by streams of water that's deeply rooted, that's deeply nourished which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. That's the picture of the flourishing person. And what we see here in Psalm 1, very simply, is that when our minds are saturated with the instruction of the Lord, it will lead to a flourishing life. We see something very similar in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, where Moses says, Love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your strength, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So he's speaking to the generation that's coming out of the wilderness, that's going into the land of promise that God had uh, committed to give to them. And he says to them, as you're going in, these commands that I'm gonna give you today, the instruction of the Lord, the law of the Lord, is to be on your hearts. That is to be, it is at the very core, the very center of your being. He goes on to say, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So the instruction of the Lord is to be on my heart, on our hearts, and we're to talk about it, we're to teach it to the next generation. It's supposed to be there when we're at home, when we're out, when we rise in the morning, when we lie down at night. The instruction of the Lord is to be the core center of my being. And one last very uh, brief reference is uh, in the book of Romans chapter 12, a passage that uh, many of you are familiar with says, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he sets up this sort of dichotomy and says, either you're being conformed to the pattern of the world or you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is no neutral person. Everyone's being sort of led or pulled in one of those two directions. And his instruction is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And what we see here in uh, all of these passages really is uh, we see something of the central place that the mind takes in the kind of people that we're becoming. Our mind is in a way uh, somewhat of a battleground for the kind of people that we're becoming. The transformation that we experience as followers of Jesus, it always begins in our minds. And of course, it works its way out into other areas of life, but it always begins in our minds. It always begins with us understanding and believing what is true about God, what is true about us. And so this, the mind plays such a central role uh, because what we consume will direct the course of our lives. What consumes our thinking will direct the course of our lives. And so this is why Paul tells us that we are to fill our minds with these things. So he says, fill your minds not just with any old thing, but these things in particular. And then he goes on to list a number of them. He says, fill your minds with what is true. Of course, I think this would encompass what's true about who God is, what he's revealed to us is true about himself, what he's like, what his character's like, what his nature's like, how we see him at work in the world. Think about what is true about God. I think it would also include uh, what is true about us as human beings who are created in God's image with dignity and value and honor. Think about what's true about human beings. And also would include what's true about us in Christ, that we are loved, 
that we are accepted, that we are forgiven, that we are, um, we are beloved sons and daughters of God. Think about what is true. He goes on to say, think about what is noble. That is another way of saying that is what is honorable. Think about things that are honorable. He says, think about whatever is right. A literal translation of that word would be think about what is just. He says, think about what is pure. That is, what is undefiled, what is clean. Think about those things. Think about what is lovely. It's a word that means attractive, but I think the translators did a good job of uh, translating it lovely here because I think we all know that there are things that could be attractive. They're also not pure. (laughs) They're also not uh, truthful for us to think about. And so we've got this image here of think about things that are lovely. Think about things that are beautiful. Think about what is admirable. Think about the kind of things that ought to be admired in a person. If there's anything that is excellent, think about it. If there's anything that is praiseworthy, that is worth praising, that is worth talking up, that is worth uh, making a big deal out of, think about those things. That's his instruction, is to have our minds saturated with these things. Because when we do so, it will shape the direction of our lives. Because what consumes our thinking will direct the course of our lives. So he commands us to think about these kind of things. Now, where I want to spend uh, the rest of our time this morning is just thinking about this, that Paul holds out here a positive vision of the things that we are supposed to fill our minds with. I think this is really important, that he does not conclude this book by saying, finally, brothers and sisters, stay away from anything that you see out there in the culture because it might influence you. All those bad things, those bad people, those bad places, you know, stay away from those places. He doesn't say, finally, brothers and sisters, you should isolate yourself from everything around you in the world that is not distinctly Christian because you might become tainted after all. You might become influenced by it. And so you need to uh, separate yourself, (laughs) you know. Uh, You need to cancel your Netflix subscription and get a Pure Flix subscription is what you need to do. Uh, you can only listen to Christian music or Christian radio. You can only read Christian books. You can only have Christian friends. You can only watch Christian movies. If Kirk Cameron isn't in it, if he didn't help produce it, you can't watch it. Okay? He does not say that. He does not hold out this negative vision of all these things we need to reject. What he does is he gives us a positive vision of what we are to fill our minds with. He doesn't say you should withdraw from society. You should be this little cloistered community that's insulated from the world around you that, that you know, no one can get in because you, know, you don't want to be influenced. He doesn't tell us to withdraw and to have this sort of attitude of fear of you know, those people, the people that, are, you know, that don't follow Jesus, they could corrupt me. They could corrupt us. And so we need to keep, you know, always keep them at arm's length. He doesn't give us that sort of vision. He gives us a vision, a positive vision of what we are to fill our minds with. We are to fill our minds with what is true, what is right, what is noble, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. Fill your minds with these things. And here's what I think is so critical for us to see about this, that the filling of our minds is driven by affection. 
okay? The filling of our minds is driven by affection. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, there may be someone here today, there may be more than, there may be some ones who are here today who think, you know, all this talk about the mind, all this talk about, you know, meditating on the law of the Lord and this, you know, emphasis on, you know, your mind is sort of this battleground for the kind of person you're becoming, you know, this all sounds so academic. It sounds so boring, it sounds so dry, it just sounds so intellectual, it's all logic, and I just, I just don't want any part of that. I can totally understand uh, why you may think that. Did you hear? I guess I just realized what I said, why you think that. (laughs) But that's not at all true. The filling of our minds is driven by affection. We fill our minds with these things, with this list of things that Paul has given us, because these things have first captivated our hearts. The filling of our minds is not a prime, you know, it's not primarily an academic endeavor. It's an endeavor of us choosing what we love. We fill our minds with these things because we, uh, we see what these things are. We see the value in them. We love them, and we want to fill our minds with them. Our hearts have been captivated. You notice the language of fill your minds with things that are lovely. That first calls us to recognize that something is beautiful, something is worth thinking about something that is honorable, something that is praiseworthy. Those are the kind of things that we are to fill our minds with, not necessarily as an academic exercise, but because we have been driven to do so by affection. Our minds, we fill our minds with these things because our hearts have first been captivated by them. And our hearts have been captivated by them because they reveal something to us about who God is. I think that's the key to all of this, is that these things are attractive to us. We ought to fill our minds with these things because they all, in a unique way, reveal something to us about who God is. And he is worth filling our minds with. So just let me give you a couple examples. Uh, You could read the pages, the story of the Bible, and you could learn lots of things that are true about who God is. You can learn lots of things that are true about human beings, that are true about our world, and of course, you know, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if every time you go along in the text, there'd be like this little parenthesis that says, dear reader, this is giving you a truth claim. Uh, that's not exactly how it works. But as you read the story of scripture, as thoughtful readers, you begin to get a picture of, of what is true about who God is, about what hu- human beings are. And so we, from the very beginning, have this beautiful picture of God who is overly abundant and he's generous and he's a wise and good creator. We see that what's true about humans is that we are created in God's image with dignity and value. What we see is that human beings rebelled against God. Human beings sinned. And what we see is also that God hates sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin. And also, God is merciful and God is faithful. God makes all kinds of promises and proves himself to be both a promise maker and a promise keeper. So we learn all of these things about who God is, and we see, as we read the pages of the Bible, we see that there is a God who is the source of all truth. And so what we want to do then, as followers of Jesus, is not as an academic exercise, but because our hearts have been captivated by him, we want to think about things that are true. We want to think about things that reflect something of the God who is the source of all truth. And so choosing to think about what is true is not this sort of cold process of saying, well, this is true and this is false and I'm gonna put this, you know, input this into my brain and not input this one. It's not like that. We see what's true about who God is revealed in scripture and our hearts desire to think about these things. 
because he is the source of truth. Our hearts have been captivated, our affections have been stirred, and so we therefore think about anything that is true because it reflects the God who is the source of all truth. Similarly, we could look at the story of the Bible and specifically in the the books known as the prophets, we can see a very clear picture that God is just. God hates injustice. God is on the side of those who are vulnerable, those who are marginalized, those who are powerless, those who are taken advantage of. He is a God who will bring his justice to bear in any and every situation in the end. And we also know that we, because of the sin that we have committed, we are deserving of God's justice. We all are deserving to sit under the full weight of the justice of God for the things that we have done. And yet what we see is that he is a God who's just and he's also a God who's merciful. And so what he's done is he's made a way. By sending his son Jesus, who would suffer and die in our place, Jesus was unjustly treated so that the justice of God could pass over us. And so we see this picture of, yes, God is just. He will make everything right in the end and we love that. We see a picture of who God is and we don't academically just fill our minds with things, quote unquote, that are just. We fill our minds with things that reflect the God we serve who is a God of justice. And so our hearts are first stirred for this. Our hearts are captivated. Our affections are stirred for things that are just because we know the God who is just. Now this one, uh, we'll talk about the book of Leviticus for a minute. Those of you who've been around Elmwood know that I keep joking about doing a sermon series in Leviticus, and I have, uh, I've got, see, I've got more than one person in my back pocket who would be here. There may only be two of you here when we do it, but um, one day we'll do something in Leviticus. But you know, this is one of those parts of the Bible that seems uh, especially confusing to most people uh, for a lot of good reasons. (laughs) Uh, But what I will say about the book of Leviticus is that what you see in there is something of the purity and the holiness of God. That is so clear, that God is pure, he is holy, he is unable to be in the presence of sin, he's undefiled, he's not corrupted, he's not corruptible. You have a clear picture of God who is a God of purity. And so we see that God is pure, we have rebelled against him, we have sinned against him, we are unfit to be in his presence, and yet the good news is that God has made a way for us to be brought back into his presence. God has made a way for his presence to be with us and to reside among us. And so all of this, you know, the sacrifices and all the things that seem somewhat confusing to us in the book of Leviticus, uh, those things are all intended to show us God has made a way for the presence of himself, who is a holy God, to be in the presence of unholy people without consuming us in his holiness. And so we have a picture of God as holy, as pure, as set apart, as distinct, as other. And our hearts are captivated by this. We see the good news that God has made a way for us to be in his presence. Our affections are stirred for that. And so as a result, we desire to fill our minds with anything that's pure. We fill our minds with anything that is a reflection of his purity and his holiness because he is a God who's pure. He is a God who's holy. So does does this make sense? The reason that we fill our minds with these things, this is not a dry, boring, academic process. The filling of our minds is not like that. We fill our minds with these things because we love him. 
We fill our minds with these things because they reflect something of his character and his goodness. And because we love him, we want those things to be in the center, the core of our being. And so filling our minds is so far from a dry, boring academic process of just thinking, you know, just logic. It's driven by our affections. It's driven by a heart that's been captivated and stirred by who God is. Now, as Paul writes this to the church in Philippi, he writes these words here, uh, you know, they didn't have the full Bible that we have. Uh, When Paul spoke these things, the only Bible that Paul had and these early believers had was the Hebrew Bible, which is what we know as the Old Testament. And seven of the eight words that are used here, you know, think about these things and he gives a list. Seven of the eight of those things are also found in the Greek Old Testament. And so what this gives us a clue into is that Paul was defining what is true, what is noble, what is pure, what is just. He's defining those things by looking to the story of the Bible. It's scripture that informs us in our definition of what those things are. And we get these clues. We can read the story. We can see the ways that God has revealed himself as as all of these uh, things in this passage. But the good news for us is that we have the fullest expression of these things in the person of Jesus. We don't just have shadows. We don't just have sort of uh, foretastes as we get in the Old Testament. We have the actual real substance of the thing. And Paul knew this to be true because Paul wrote in one of his other letters, he says, Jesus is the the image of the invisible God. God is invisible to our eyes. We can't see him. He is spirit. And yet we can see something of who God is because Jesus is, God himself has taken on human flesh and has accompanied us in our humanity. And we get to see a picture of who he is. And we see that in Jesus, all of these things that Paul tells us to fill our minds with, these things are all brought to completion. They're all brought to fulfillment. They all get get their sort of fullest expression in the person of Jesus. We also know from the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, the son, is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. So you want to know what God is like? Look at the person of Jesus. And so we have in Jesus the fullness of the character of God that we can visibly see with our eyes. And of course, we can't see him because we weren't there. We have the account of his life. We have the presence of the Spirit who illuminates us for us, who who, uh, reminds us of the truths of the gospel. But we have in Jesus the clearest expression, the fullest expression of everything that we see here that Paul tells us to fill our minds with. And so what we can take away from this, Paul's instruction for us is fill your minds with Christ. Jesus is the one who perfectly embodies, who perfectly fulfills all of these character traits that you see. Fill your minds with Christ. And as we know, the things that we fill our minds with are going to direct the course of our lives. And so he says, fill your minds with Christ and it will direct the course of your life. It will never just stay intellectual. It will never just stay in our minds. It will always work its way out in our behavior. But it begins by having our hearts and our minds captivated and our affections stirred for who God is in Christ. And then our lives will be changed. And Paul even says here, he says, pray about everything, think about these things, and then put it all into practice. Verse nine, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And so notice how broad that is. You know, you ask, well, what things am I supposed to put into practice? What am I supposed to do? And his response is, all the things. Do all the things. (laughs) He doesn't give us this list of like, here's all the, you know, specific things you have to do. 
but he says, have minds that are filled with Christ and then live accordingly. If your mind is saturated with that, if your heart is stirred by who Jesus Christ is and who God is revealed to us in Christ, that will change the direction of your life. That will completely alter and change the course of your life. And this is the vision that Paul lays out for us here, is that Jesus fulfills all of this and we get to have lives uh, that are centered around. We get to meditate on the instruction of the Lord. We get to meditate on Christ and that will completely change everything. You know, one of the ways that we meditate on Christ and keep him at the center is we come to the communion table. And we do that every single Sunday and as we do, it's a repeated act. It's something that we do repeatedly. We act out our belief in Christ by choosing to stand up out of our seats and walk forward invisibly with our physical bodies, with our lives, say, I receive you, Christ. It's a visible demonstration of our faith and it's also a visible demonstration of God's faithfulness to us as we look at the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We see the mercy and the compassion and the love of God given for us and we get to come forward and receive that with gladness and with joy because of what Christ has done for us. And so one of the ways that we fill our minds with these things and meditate on these things is to come forward and to commune with Christ at the table. As we come forward today, I want to invite you to take a few moments of silent confession and reflection. So let's do that right now. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thoughts, in word, in deed, both by things that we have done as well as by things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole hearts, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have not recognized the formative impact of the things that we let into our minds. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have not recognized the formative impact of not just the content that we receive, but the way that we receive that content. Lord, we know that a life of flourishing will come as we are deeply saturated with an understanding of who you are and as we're filled with these things that Paul talks about here. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for the ways that we have not been thoughtful, have not been careful about the things that we let into our minds. We've chosen to, uh, at times, value other things. We've chosen to have other things that have captivated our minds and our hearts. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for those. We pray, O oh God, that in your mercy that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.